The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke, glory to you, Lord Christ. Now his parents went up to Jerusalem each year for the feast of the Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to their custom. But when the Passover was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus remained in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, supposing he was among the group, and they traveled a day's journey. And then they began to look for him among the relatives and the acquaintances. And when they could not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, asking, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. But Jesus answered them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And so he went down with them to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. We had an anonymous Christmas prayer card come in from this year's services. As I came into my desk this week, I found it sitting there for me. This was the anonymous prayer card from Christmas. How do I know if any of this is true? How do I know if any of this is true? It's a question that I've been asked a lot in my life, not just because I'm a priest, but also because I'm a former atheist. I asked myself that question a lot as I was going through my conversion to become a Christian. How can I know if any of this is true? Part of where we always have to go with that question is by asking what we mean by no, knowing. See, in our culture today, knowing has become this almost word that's synonymous with ironclad, absolutely no doubts, um, you know, rock solid, empirically evident belief, right? And would actually take the word belief right out of it. I know this, and then would put faith in a whole other category. But this is a misunderstanding because any one of us who's honest, recognizing that we are limited, finite creatures, recognize that nothing that we know is rock solid, right? Because we can be wrong. We've experienced it where we think we're right, but we're so wrong. It's like when you think you know that football is the greatest game on earth. You know it, you know it. And then you go to your first hockey game and you're like, I was so wrong. See, knowing, when we say knowledge, how do I know something's true? It's more about taking in all the data we can and then deciding where we're gonna put our faith. See, knowledge, saying I know something, is an act of faith. 
It's an act of saying, I choose to believe based on as much data and evidence as I have, I'm gonna put my trust there. That is what knowing means. So when someone says, how can I know that all this is true? They're really asking, how can I come to the place that I can believe it, that I can put my trust there? And the way that we find again and again in scripture that we come to know Jesus, that we come to know this to be true, that we come to place our belief there is as we hear about Jesus. The only way that we can know whether Jesus is for real and whether his story is for real is as we encounter the story of Jesus. This is not like some divine download that just happens one day and you go, oh, I get it, I believe. No, instead, scripture and 2,000 years of church history have shown us it is as people sit with the story of Jesus, as we hear the story of Jesus told over and over again, that people come to a place where they begin to say, I believe that to be true. See, this story that we have today from Luke chapter two is really a finding Jesus story. Mary and Joseph lose Jesus They go search for him and they find him. And in some ways, if we'll read the story in that light, like it's a finding Jesus story, right? This is all about finding Jesus. Mary and Joseph don't have Jesus. They go and find him. And what do they find when they find him? When they find Jesus, what is revealed? If we look at it that way, I think we'll begin to see that this is a picture really of what every person experiences when they find Jesus. As they begin to encounter Jesus, here's what they find. This is really, you could argue, an allegorical reading of this story. But I think it's powerful. This is a finding Jesus story. This morning I was trying to find a warm winter coat. But let me say, friends, this is not cold. Sorry to break it to you. My brother lives in Edmonton. It's minus 20 there, right? The problem is for Canadians that move to Texas, sorry, I can't put my family in this category. They're a lot smarter than me. For this Canadian in my household, I think I figured there would be no more cold weather ever again. I got rid of my parka. I got rid of my boots. I got rid of all my sweaters. And I've been freezing for the month of December. No wonder I got so sick just the few days before Christmas because I was walking around in t-shirts trying to say, it's not cold. Well, it is cold. And you're all very brave for being here this morning. But this story is about finding Jesus. Finding Jesus. See, Mary and Joseph lose Jesus. In verse 43 of our text, when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus was left behind in Jerusalem. He stayed behind. Verse 44, the horror of all parents' fear. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, a day's journey, and then they discovered we lost Jesus. Here's a word of encouragement to every parent in the room, okay? We've all had our failings. We've all had bad moments as parents. We've got our failures as parents. But you know what, Mary and Joseph, I mean, they're such an encouragement to me because as bad a parent as I've been at times, I ain't never lost the son of God, okay? So Mary and Joseph, that's all on you. They lost Jesus. 
They return, verse 44, they search for him among the relatives. They don't find him, verse 45. Search again, they're searching Jerusalem. And then verse 48, when Mary and Joseph find him, the word from his mother, we were searching for you. Behold, your father and I were searching for you. This is a, a lost and found story. But if we look at it as a story of what it's like to find Jesus allegorically, as what we find when we encounter Jesus, I think we'll find our own story here or a story that at least is inviting each of us in, inviting you to come and find it as well. See, there's three things that we find in this story as Mary and Joseph find Jesus. There's three things. The first thing they find is they find instruction. They find Jesus teaching. Well, he's kind of the student in this moment, but really we'll see that he as the student has really become the teacher. They find instruction. But as, as amazing as the instruction is, it gets even better. They find incarnation. They find God in the flesh. They don't fully understand it yet. We're gonna see that. But they find incarnation, God become flesh. Instruction, incarnation as we find Jesus, but better than all of that they find his intention. You see, as amazing as the instruction is from Jesus, as amazing as the incarnation is of Jesus, even more exciting, even more profound, even more full of grace is his intention, why he came. So first of all, the instruction. We find, as we find Jesus, as we encounter the Jesus story, we find instruction. We find one who's giving instruction. His teaching, verses 46 and 47 of Luke chapter 2. 46 reads, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. They were amazed. Even at 12 years of age, what this boy says is amazing, astonishing. They're, they're, they're blown away by the wisdom and the knowledge of God's word because that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the ways of God. They're talking about the Torah. They're talking about the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And as they look at it, the teachers are amazed. The student is truly teaching the teachers at 12 years of age. And as Jesus goes through his earthly ministry, when he's 30 years of age and begins going out and teaching again and again, the crowds are astonished at what they find in his teaching. His teaching is like none other. In fact, it even brings the crowds to a place of fear at times. It's so amazing. It's scary what he's saying. No one is taught like this man has taught before. We often forget that in our culture. We don't think of Jesus as brilliant. We think of Jesus as nice, don't we? Jesus is nice. He's a nice guy. But do you think of Jesus as the smartest person who ever lived? Dallas Willard writes these, these words. He says, he is not just nice. Jesus is brilliant. He is the smartest man who ever lived. He always has the best information on everything and certainly also on the things that matter most in human life. I found this again and again in my life. Once I started following Jesus, I found, first of all, an instructor. I found one that would teach me a way that I had never been taught before. As a husband, as a father, as a leader, I am again and again bowled over by the fact that if I would just listen to what Jesus taught and actually do it, my life would be so much better. 
Again and again, there are moments when I will fall into my own wisdom, my own worldly wisdom, and again and again, it's that bonehead moment where you're like, it's right there. Jesus told me otherwise, and yet I don't do it. See, Jesus' teachings, again and again, trump all the other teachers they will encounter. Peter says this in John 6, when all the crowds are beginning to leave Jesus, and Jesus says to the disciples, are you going to go too? And they say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. See, it was Jesus in his teaching where we first encounter, as we come and meet Jesus, we find this incredible instruction, incredible teaching. But what's incredible about it is it's not just some philosophy out there. Jesus isn't just another one of those philosopher teachers out there saying, well, here's how you live the world. Here's here's one theoretical way to live the world. No, Jesus' teaching ultimately always centers back to himself. Everything Jesus teaches is applied in his own life. He is the center of his teaching. He is the one. This is why Jesus doesn't just say, here's the way you should live. He says in John 14, I am the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus' teaching, his instruction always centers on himself, which then leads us to the next point. See, it's not just as we find Jesus, how can I know this is real? Find Jesus and find an instruction, as incredible as that is, the best instruction offered, it's even more because we find in Jesus incarnation, not just instruction, incarnation. God become flesh. God moving into the neighborhood. God come among us. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. See, when we find Jesus, we find a life, not just a set of teachings. We find a life, a real life. And that life was the light of men, as John 1 says. You see, Mary and Joseph don't fully understand who they're dealing with still. And I think that's a great encouragement for us as Christians. They don't fully understand. They don't fully comprehend who it is they're dealing with. Even after the virgin birth, the angels, the shepherds, Elizabeth and her testimony, Anna and Simeon, Mary and Joseph still don't fully understand that this is God come among us in the flesh. And we know that because in verse 50, we read these words. After Jesus says to them, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Verse 50, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Isn't that an encouragement? Mary and Joseph didn't fully get it. They didn't. And so we don't always get it. There's there's more to understand. There's more to determine. There's more to to be, be taught and more to learn about Jesus. You see, what Jesus has done here in verse 49 is he says these, these, these coded key strange words, my father's house. You see, this is unparalleled in Jewish literature. There is nowhere else in scripture, there is nowhere else in the rabbinic writings where any Jewish person would ever have the audacity to refer to God in heaven as my father. There would be references to our father in heaven, but never my father. This is familial language. This is Jesus declaring that this is my dad. And this got Jesus in lots of trouble in his teaching. You know, in John chapter five, the moment that the the real pressure starts getting turned on towards Jesus' execution, 
happens because he makes a reference to his father. Jesus in in John 5 has just healed the man uh, at the pool of Bethesda. This man has been an invalid for 38 years. Jesus comes and heals him, but it's the Sabbath day. And so we read in John 5 verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus is declaring here that he is God's son. God has come in the flesh. We say it in the creed every week. These words that we pronounce before we preach. I I say the creed before I preach because this becomes the anchor point that says whatever follows had better be in line with the creed or you should phone the bishop. For his sake, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man, incarnation, God become flesh. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. I would sing it, but you hear how bad my voice is. And this life, this incarnation life, Jesus' own life, as we find him, it's inexhaustible. Isn't it amazing with Jesus' life? It's like his teachings. You know, you can keep reading Jesus' teachings and you just keep finding more, but so it is with his incarnate life. You look at his life. Every week I find, as I prepare to teach and to preach, I am again shocked as I read about Jesus' life how much I didn't know the week before. I didn't see it. There's always more. There's more to be revealed. Jesus' incarnate life is inexhaustible. We will never get to the point where we completely understand the fullness of the deity living in Christ. And I would even argue, I'll go on a limb here, I even think in eternity that we're not. I think eternity is going to be us continuing to worship Jesus as we explore the inexhaustible nature of his glory and his divinity. Right? God never promised you and I that we're going to be omniscient in heaven, just that the sin will finally be put away. Right? We get to explore the inexhaustible nature of the incarnation. And what this does is it gives us a new worldview. See, if we begin to believe that this incarnate life, this is what we find when we encounter Jesus, is this life, God become flesh. It gives us a life, a worldview to see all of our life through. It becomes a lens by which we look at life. His life becomes the promise of our own life. This becomes a picture of what true life is to look like. I like how C.S. Lewis says this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Jesus' life, his incarnation, gives us the lens by which we begin to understand all of human life. When we find Jesus in this finding Jesus story, we find instruction, but even more than that, we find incarnation. God become flesh, my father. But even more than that, and even more profound, as amazing as those two things are, we finally find his intention. 
why he came, what his purpose was in leaving his throne in heaven and coming down to us. His intention, and we see it in a little tiny word, a little tiny word here, it's the word submit. Verse 51, and he came with them down to Nazareth and was submissive to them. I mean, do you hear that? That he's, after all that we've just seen, the greatest teacher that ever walked the earth, God in flesh, incarnate, became submissive to Mary and Joseph. It means subject, it means stand under, it means fully obey. That he placed himself below this human couple and submitted himself to them. And it's a picture of Jesus' intention, why he came. See, as amazing as his teaching is, as amazing as it is to imagine that the God of the universe has come in the flesh, it is utterly unbelievable that his intention would be to place himself below us. His subjection to Mary and Joseph is a little picture, a little sign of his entire life, a life of service, a life of sacrifice, a life of sacrificial love. Jesus came, his intention was to place himself below us so that he would save us. In Mark 10, we need to hear this. In a world of just broken understanding of power, where power dynamics are so abused in our world, politically, in Hollywood, everywhere, Jesus, with his disciples, says these words about what power, true power, should look like. Mark 10, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must become your servants, and whoever would be first of you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, even in this story with Jesus being found in the temple, we even see the little hints at exactly what this service is going to look like. Verse 41, it says that this all happens in the context of the Passover. It'll be 21 years later that this 12-year-old would have grown up And he will again come to Jerusalem on the Passover. That feast celebrating the victory and the freedom of coming out of Egypt where that sacrificial lamb had to die so that the angel of death would pass by the Israelites. But on this Passover 21 years later, he will be the sacrificial lamb. He will be the Passover lamb. And not only do we see the Passover reference here, but we even see resurrection in this text what he's truly come to do to free us from sin and death. Verse 46, oh, how I love to tell the story. Verse 46, after three days, they found him. Do you hear it? After three days, they found him. Three days. At the end of Luke's gospel in chapter 24, there will be two disciples walking along the road to Emmaus. They will be leaving Jerusalem just as Mary and Joseph had left Jerusalem after the Passover. Jesus will appear to them and they will say to him, it has been three days since we lost him. And there he is standing before them. It's a picture of resurrection. 
See, Jesus' intention, as incredible as his teaching is, as incredible as the concept of this incarnation, God become flesh is, it is nothing in comparison to the fact that his intention was to come and pour it all out for you and me. That will change the world. That is something we've never seen before, but in him. And it's the reason we celebrate Eucharist every week. Because I don't know about you, but I lose Jesus all the time. See, this isn't just a one-time thing. I, through brokenness, through pain, through suffering, through distraction, whatever it may be, I may lose Jesus on a regular basis. No, I'm not talking about losing your salvation, but you follow what I'm saying. I get to a place where I've kind of misplaced Jesus. And on a weekly basis, we put on display in this sacrament the death and resurrection of the Son of God. And we say, come and please remember When you find Jesus, here is why he came, for you. His intention was to give his life for us. The summer before Monica and I got engaged, I I spent the summer living with a guy named Bill. And Bill was the first Broadway actor I'd ever lived with, um, ever, ever worked with. And uh, he and I were working, living together in the same apartment because he was the lead in one production we were doing and I was the lead in the other production. Uh, his was much better. Uh, they hired the Broadway actor to play the leading role, high French comedy, Jean-Baptiste Moliere's The Miser. That was in the evenings, glory. In the afternoons with screaming children, I was Robin Hood in Robin Hood the Musical. Not so glorious. But Bill and I spent the summer as roommates. And one day he said to me, he said, Paul, I want to find what you have found. He was an unbeliever and he said, I wanna find what you've found. And so every night from that point on through the rest of the summer, we sat together and Bill would pour a glass of wine and we would talk about finding Jesus. And we talk about the instruction and Jesus' teaching. We talk about the incarnation. But then we talk about Jesus' intention. And I talk about how Jesus had come for him, for me. How all of that Godhead in that man had come to subject himself to suffering and death for you and me. And there wasn't a great conversion moment in that summer. It didn't all have a happy ending. But here's what Bill left me with. Near the end of the summer... He said to me one night when we were talking about the crucifixion and God, all of God, come in Jesus and pouring that out for us. He said, that's, that I cannot shake. That convicts me in a way that nothing else will. How do I know that any of this is real? The way we find the reality of this, the truth of this, the way we know that we choose to put our faith there is by encountering the story of Jesus, by beholding Jesus, by finding Jesus. And as we find Jesus, we find the greatest instructor ever known. But even more, we find in Jesus' incarnation, God become flesh, living among us, a life. But greater than any of those, we find his intention was to come not to be served, not to, serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In 2018, will I put at the top of my priority list regularly seeking after Jesus? 
Do I desire above all things to know him and him crucified in my life? Why lies he in such mean estate where ox and ass are feeding? Good Christians fear for sinners hear the silent word is pleading. Nails, spears shall pierce him through the cross he bore for me, for you. Hail, hail the word made flesh, the babe, the son of Mary. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.